Well, let's pray just one more time, if you uh, wouldn't mind, just bow your heads as we go into our message. Father, thank you again for your presence and for being with us. Thank you for uh, giving us clarity as we open your word. In Jesus' name, and we thank you. Amen. Some of you may have heard of the individual, and we put his face up on the screen here, Armand Hammer. Any of you heard of the name Armand Hammer, the chairman of the Occidental, of Occidental Petroleum? Now, he died December of 1990 at the age of 92. And uh, when he died, he was a legend. Uh, he had done things people only dreamed about. Uh, he had become a successful businessman and a person of influence with presidents and a generous philanthropist and patron of the arts. Uh, USA Today called him a giant of capitalism and a confidant of world leaders and flamboyant crusader for world peace and a cancer cure. Other reports cited his many accomplishments, such as making his first million by the age of 21, uh, providing humanitarian aid to Soviet Russia in 1921, and improving U.S.-Soviet relations and receiving numerous awards granted by over a dozen countries. Uh, also, the, the biographies written about Hammer before his death in 1990 described him in glowing terms. The story was that he saved his father's pharmaceutical company while he was still in medical school, traveled to the Soviet Union in his 20s, made huge amounts of money in business there, and uh, bought and amassed a huge collection of priceless czarist artwork and treasure and made a fortune selling them all here, right here in the United States. He later went on to buy Occidental Petroleum Corporation, turning it into a multi-billion dollar organization. Now, most people thought he was a business genius, but after he died, the truth about Armin Hammer came out. Armin Hammer's image was actually a result of a carefully crafted public relations campaign that spanned seven decades. He manufactured much of his personal history. He continually controlled information about himself, hiring ghostwriters to create fictitious autobiographies of his own life, and even created a company, Armin Hammer Productions, whose mission was to make films promoting him. All these efforts were made to disguise a deceptive man who used people like objects and then threw them out like trash when he was finished with them. Hammer had no friends. He allowed his father to go to prison for him. He neglected his only son. He hid himself from his only other child, an illegitimate daughter. He was a, left a trail of broken marriages. It's no surprise that when uh, at Hammer's funeral on December 13, 1990, it was poorly attended. His son Julian didn't appear and neither did his family, the family of his two brothers. His pole bearers were his chauffeur, his male nurse and other personal employees. Pretty sad, isn't it? The story of Armand Hammer reveals the disturbing truth that people aren't always what they appear to be on the surface. Some people are mere pretenders bluffing their way through life to hide who they really are. Maybe you've run into, we've run into people like that from time to time. Uh, why would anyone want to live uh, to fool anyone is beyond me. But the fact remains, pretenders exist. And when found out, how disappointing, especially when expectations run high, 
for these individuals. Now, unfortunately, these experiences aren't isolated to the world, uh, but they've found their way also into the Christian church. As a matter of fact, Jesus addresses these two issues in another story that he shared. Now, if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, and this is where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is the only gospel writer that actually touches on, deals with this particular parable or story that Jesus, uh, Jesus spoke. And it's in Matthew chapter 13, and we'll look at verse 24 through 30. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou or didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you gather the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so Jesus talks about pretenders in the church. Uh, these two issues with regard to pretenders and how to handle disappointed expectations. I'm not sure if it was put up on the screen. Maybe we can put that up on the screen as well. want to make sure you, you, you get the essence of, the, of this particular parable. The parable of the wheat and tares speaks to the issues of the pretenders of, in the church and how to handle disappointed expectations. All right, so Jesus shares the parable. The disciples come to him after actually nearly pleading. Can you please explain this? And so Jesus does back down in verse 37. So jump there with me to Matthew 13 and verse 37. And we'll look at how Jesus explains his own parable. Aren't you glad Jesus helps us with this one? Yeah, all right, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 37. And he answered and said to them, He that sows the good seed is the son of who? Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth." Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. You got your ears on this morning? Sure. All right. We've got our ears on, so let us hear. Who is the sower according to Jesus in this parable? The sower in this parable is none other than himself. That's exactly right. The son of man. This is Jesus. It's encouraging to know that Christ introduces himself in this parable as the son of man. This is a hard hitting parable. This is not an easy uh, presentation for me to make here today, but Jesus reveals himself as the son of man. More on that a little bit later. So in the parable, what is the field that the seed is sown into according to what Jesus said? He said, that's all right, he said it's the world. Jesus said it's the world, but it's okay to understand this as the church 
in the world. We're talking about what, friends? The kingdom of what? Of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's right, the church on earth. When you jump down to verse 41, the Son of Man shall send his angels and gather out of where, friends? His kingdom. You see, all things that offend. You notice there that eventually the tares are going to be gathered out. And where are they going to be gathered out of? The kingdom. That's exactly right. So definitely, this is referring, definitely it can't be referring to the world, but we can understand this to uh, mean the church in the world. This is referring to God's kingdom on earth, the kingdom of his grace, you see. Uh, remember, it's in the church that the followers of Jesus grow and ripen for the final harvest, but the parable deals solely with the development of his followers. So we can understand when Jesus said the world, he's talking about the church in the world. All right, then Jesus reveals that there are two groups of people in the church, and we'll put the slide up as well for this one. There are two groups of people revealed in the church. You've got the good seed who are the children of the kingdom, or in other words, those uh, in the church that are born of the word of God. These are folk who are converted, you see. They're genuine followers of Jesus. They are authentic. They are authentic. And then uh, you've got the others, now, by the way, for these folk, the authentic, for the authentic, theirs is more than a profession of faith in Christ, but a possession of Christ in the life. We're trying to define some terms here. Their creeds and their deeds are congruent, you see. And this happens not because they're born with some special advantage, but because they've opened their hearts wide to the truths of God's word and allowing God's work of grace to be worked out into their lives, you see. They've just, they're letting God have his way in their lives. These are genuine followers. They're letting Jesus have his way in their lives. Then you've got the fake. You've got the tares who are the children of the wicked one, the wicked one who, who sowed the seed in the, uh, in the field. And Jesus said the one who did that is who? The the devil. That's right. You've got to be thankful for Jesus' explanation here. You see, God's not nor ever will be responsible for what the devil has done and continues to do. The Bible tells us that all good things and perfect things come from above, from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We read that in James chapter 1 verse 17. In other words, God issues grace. God issues goodness. God issues blessing. Hurt, pain, grief, all that bad stuff. Well, Jesus said an enemy has done this. We need to make sure we understand a clear distinction. Now, back in the East in Jesus' day, uh, men would sometimes take revenge on an enemy by scattering seeds into a freshly sown field. Now, it was likely that they sowed what, what is called the bearded darnel. And we'll put a picture for you up on the screen so you can, you can see what this thing looks like. The bearded darnel. Uh, you've got the wheat and you've got the bearded darnel. The wheat is on the left, the bearded darnel on the, on the right. The bearded darnel was used, it normally grows to about two feet tall today in Palestine. And while it's in its earliest stages, it's pretty much indistinguishable from the wheat. You can tell, right? It's very, very close to each other. But when the plant matures and the seeds of the darnel turn black, it then becomes very easy to distinguish between the wheat and the tares, between the the wheat and the bearded darnel. Interestingly, the seeds are poisonous, very poisonous. And if eaten, it's said that they could produce violent nausea, diarrhea, convulsions, and sometimes, if taken in large quantity, death. 
Growing with the wheat, you understand, it would hurt the crop and naturally it would bring, be a source of frustration to the owner of the crop. And that was the purpose in sowing the bearded darnel in, the, in this freshly sown field of wheat. So this graphic, this graphic parable lends itself almost perfectly to the spiritual truth illustrated by this parable. Growing right by each other in the church, according to Jesus, not according to Pastor Chris or anyone else, according to Jesus in the church, you've got converted Christians and growing by each, each growing by the side of each other, you've got Christians, converted Christians, and those that say they are, but they are really not. Hmm. And this shocking condition... And this is the shocking condition that threatens the advancement of the church, the promulgation of the three angels' messages you see. Let's ask a question here. What does Satan want to accomplish in sowing tares in the church? What does the devil want to accomplish? What's the object of sowing tares in the church? Keep these points in mind. Because they'll help you, they'll help me, they'll help each one of us understand when things don't seem to make sense in the church. When you perhaps expect more from your church. Number one, the devil wants to dishonor God. That's really what he wants to do. If he can show that the church is a stronghold of hypocrites, then the devil can easily put God in an obscure light. Who is going to think much of God and be led to honor him uh, when the very people who are called to properly represent him miss represent him. And remember, a misrepresentation of God's character is the devil's number one weapon to keep people out of heaven. That's his goal. That's his objective. So he wants to dishonor God. Number two, he wants to misrepresent the work of salvation. He wants to misrepresent the work of salvation. If he can get people seeing that saved folk are just like unsaved folk, mean and nasty and impatient and unkind, then he can lead people to believe that God's plan designed to save people from these things doesn't work, that it's actually a farce. And what happens when someone gets a hold of that idea? They're not going to be very interested in availing themselves of God's saving grace, are they? Now you, you heard that uh, this, this particular phone didn't work. Did you go out and buy it? You heard that this particular uh, tablet just had problems after problem after problem. Did you go buy it? No. And this is the devil's attempt to suggest that the plan of salvation doesn't work to folk in the world because he gets people looking in the church and seeing folk in the church, saved folk, saved folk, acting like unsaved folk, you see. Folk need to see a change in Christians before they believe that it's the real deal and make it their very own. Thankfully, thankfully, Jesus Christ can make that happen. Jesus can transform the character. Amen? No doubt about that. All right, so that's number two. Number three, what else does the devil want to do in sowing these tears in the church? He wants to imperil souls. How does the devil do this? He wants to get church folk looking at other church folk, and by doing this, he can get some discouraged and end up throwing in the towel, end up causing them to be discouraged. The devil brings into the church those that bear the name of Jesus while they deny his character. That's what the devil wants to do. The arm and hammers of the world he brings into the church. And how many people have lost sight of Christ because they spent too much time focusing on the problems and problem people, so to speak? How many have lost their spiritual footing because they let disappointment over false brethren in the church get the better of them? 
If they only kept their heads in God's word, if only they had looked to Jesus and seen in him loveliness and holiness and grace, if they only took the name of Jesus with them and sought to bring others to him, then perhaps they wouldn't have fallen away like some have. They forgot that Jesus can bring victory out of defeat. They forgot that Jesus can bring hope out of a hopeless situation. They forgot that Jesus can bring faith to conquer where only unbelief exists, truth to stand tall where error lies, and pretense masquerading is the real thing. Thank the Lord that Jesus can bring victory. Amen? No doubt about that. According to the parable, the tear, a tear is like, is like the real thing. It is like the real thing. But a child knows the difference. But a child even knows the difference. One blistering hot day when mum had guests over for for dinner, she asked her four-year-old James to return thanks, pray over the food. Well, I don't know what to say, mum. Well, just say what you hear me say, she said. So obediently the boy bowed his head and mumbled, oh Lord, why did I invite these people over on a hot day like this? (laughs) Children know. Children know. Some uh, years ago, a pretty impressive picture, a pretty impressive picture was exhibited in London. And as you looked at this picture from a distance, it seemed as though you had a man bowed over, a very pious man engaged in prayer. This is what, this is what you saw when you looked at it from a distance. A very pious man engaged in prayer, his hands clasped and his head's, ba- his head bowed. And as you came nearer though to the picture, it ex- and you examined the painting, you realized, and as you looked at it more closely, you realized that in reality, the man was actually squeezing a lemon into a punch bowl. Now, unfortunately, the, unfortunately, the enemy has sown into the church those who appear to be religious and pious, but all they're doing is making the lives of others sour. And so here's one of the lessons Jesus teaches us here in this parable. We'll put it for you up on the screen. Jesus is teaching us that not everyone who professes Christ actually possesses Christ. Not not everyone who professes Christ lives for Christ. That's what Jesus is teaching us here in this parable. Well, someone's bound to ask, well, how do these folk get this way? Well, that's not an easy one to answer. One could suggest that perhaps some folk have built their Christian experience upon false or wrong principles. Perhaps they think that a profession of Christianity is good enough, just mental assent that doesn't change the life. Perhaps they think that that's good enough. Whatever the reason, the foundation of it evidently is wrong and it ends up telling in their lives and the fruit that they bear might even just be lemons. In the parable, I want you to go with me to verse 27. Look at that. In the parable, we read verse 27. So the servants of the householder came, and they said to him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? Now these folk evidently are distressed because of the attitude of, of some of the professed followers of Jesus in the church. They're bothered by seeing true and false believers mingle together in the church. Many find the church is not what they expected it to be and their expectations become bitterly disappointed. They ask perhaps, aren't all in the church representatives of Christ? Yet why are some acting more like the devil? What's going on around here? What's happening in this place? Listen, folk, if it should come as no surprise to any of us that the devil has done his insidious work. The parable says, while men slept, he did his work of sowing tears. We see that his is an undercover operation. He works cunningly, imperceptibly, and shrewdly. It shouldn't cause us to be disappointed when hypocrites are said to find their way through these doors. 
In the last book of the Bible, God showed John, the devil, making war against his last day church in Revelation 12 and verse 17. War means war. War means war. These are fighting words. Peter reminds us that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, First Peter 5, 8. The devil's on the war path. The devil has called an all-out war on God's people, and he means business. And so the second thing we can learn that Jesus teaches us here in this parable, and we'll put it up on the screen for you as well, is that we shouldn't be surprised or disappointed by the presence of pretenders in the church. We shouldn't be disappointed or surprised. Now, I'm not saying here today that, that, it's gonna, that you should just be relaxed and just think that that's just okay. I'm not suggesting that, and Jesus isn't suggesting that, but he's, 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 he's softening the blow for some of us. Some folk come to church and they expect it's heaven on earth, and perhaps in some respects it ought to be, but, you know, where there are folk, where there are people, there's imperfection. So if you want perfection, just let the folk go, and you'll have an empty church, but you'll have a perfectly empty church. That's all you'd have, you see. Jesus said, don't be disappointed. A humorous story appeared in the Reader's Digest some time ago. This may serve as an appropriate illustration. The writer said, and I'm just reading the story, she said, my brother adopted a snake named Slinky whose most disagreeable trait was eating live mice. Once I was pressed into going to the pet store to buy Slinky's dinner. The worst part of this choosing wasn't looking for the juiciest looking creature or turning down the clerk who wanted to sell me vitamins to ensure their longevity. The hardest part, the hardest part was carrying the poor thing out in a box bearing the words, thank you for finding me a home. I mean, you imagine what happened, if, if, if mice could think what that, mice might have, that mouse might have been thinking or those mice might have been thinking when they arrived to their brand new home only to be met with the flickering tongue and the fangs of his number, their number one arch enemy, predator. And yet there are folk who leave the world, come into what should be the safe havens of the church and we say, we want you to be a part of our family. This is God's house, this is your house. Yet when they enter in, they're quick to encounter the flickering tongues and fang, so not of a predator, but of a pretender. And how quickly these folk can become concerned and discouraged and wonder how this happened. Like the servants of the household in Jesus' story, they want to deal with the tears and wonder why the church lets it go on, lets it continue. But how does Jesus say these should be treated? How does he say how we should cope with these seemingly inconsistencies, seeming inconsistencies in the church? How are we to deal with disappointed expectations? The word that comes from Christ is verse 29. We read it earlier. We'll read it again. Verse 29. But he said, nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Now, before I talk to this issue, I need to probably interject something here. Jesus said, leave them alone. Let the wheat and the tares grow together. Let them alone. Don't go and pluck them out. Don't go and uproot them. But let me, let me just clear up something here. Was Christ saying, leave all those folk alone in the church who persist in open sin? Was he saying that? Don't worry about those who are clearly and knowingly disobeying some clear command of the Bible, who are living in rebellion. Just let it go. Was Jesus saying that? No, 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 he wasn't. There's a difference here. Jesus wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying don't deal with rebellion in your, in your ranks. He wasn't saying that. To the contrary, Jesus instead encourages us to not let it go, but to work in a redemptive way for individuals who might be in rebellion or might have fallen away from grace, so to speak, even by taking perhaps disciplinary measures. 
Just like in the family and parents dealing with the children and so on, there's correction that needs to be made. The Bible is riddled with examples where God's people were to root out and to deal with the sin problem in the camp. But this is not what the, the parable is talking about. It's not talking about open rebellion, open sin, uh, false theology, etc. Jesus says the tares, those that say they are Christians but don't appear to be, should be left. Should be left. Why? I mean, because isn't that dangerous? <laughs> Wouldn't God be dishonored, his work of salvation misrepresented and precious souls put in spiritual danger? What I believe Christ to be saying is that he has given no one the responsibility of judging motive and character, even of supposed pretenders. Jesus is saying you can't judge motive, you can't judge the character, that's for me to do. So an individual might be in the church, perhaps he's been there 5, 10 years, 25 years, who knows? By all appearances, it seems to be a pretty decent individual. But you sense that there's something not quite right, you just can't put your finger on it, but your gut tells you there's something in your mind that tells you there's something not quite right. This guy doesn't seem to be a holy Christian. Jesus says, don't be quick to sum this person up. That's what he's saying. Don't be too hasty to figure him all out. And definitely don't try to walk him out the front doors of the church. Huge mistakes have been made by some who've tried to uproot supposed spurious Christians in the church. So much damage has been done in the past that it's become close to impossible to fix. I wonder if you stop to think about that someone who was thought to be hopeless was probably the very one Christ was trying to draw to himself. Dealing with people according to our imperfect judgment could extinguish someone's last ray of hope. And friend, that would be a travesty. I think you'd agree, amen? But who's to say that the other person in question who is the one, is the one who we ought to be worrying about? Who's to say that? What about those that think that they're a strong moral tower and it's, and it's impenetrable? <laughs> what about those who think they won't ever, ever fall? Unfortunately, there are many who think that they are safe but will one day be extremely disappointed. They thought they were the ones going to heaven but come to find out they themselves weren't ready to go. How terrible it will be to realize the very thing that they thought uh, would happen to others ends up happening to, to them. And how does that end up happening? Some folk think that they've got it made. They think they've got it made, that, but in their self-confidence, they work their way right out of the loving embrace of Jesus, trusting in their own goodness as compared with the questionable behavior of others. Look how bad they are. That makes me look better. There are folk in the church that point out problems left, right, and center. It's a deflection technique. Don't want folk to think that they themselves have some issues. What a sad day it will be for these folk. You see, we have a tendency to judge by appearances, don't we? Sure we do. From where someone is from, from what family they're from, perhaps what they look like, the school they graduated from, the church they attended, the car that they drive, all of these things, we create pictures, we come up, to come to conclusions about people and individuals. But is it, but it is God who knows the heart and He alone that knows the heart. Jesus says, wait, hold on, don't be too hasty here. Let the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. So we do. And so we must be obedient. Now, the third thing that Jesus teaches here, obviously, from what we've said here this morning, is that what Jesus is teaching is that we ought to be or live with one another with forbearance and with tender love. Amen? Hang on a second. Amen? 
Right? We, we ought to be living with each other with forbearance and tender love. Uh, that, that deserves a hearty amen. Yeah, we ought to. This is what this is what church is made of. We're, gonna, we're not going to go to heaven with our our, our anger issues and with our, uh, our problem. We need to deal with them right here. And we need to be tender with each other and forbearing one another and have tender love for one another. Consider that the tares typically have their roots closely, tightly entangled with the roots of the wheat. And if you're going to pluck up one, guess what's going to happen? You're going to pluck up the, the, the true. Pretenders in the church may be closely linked with the faithful folk in the church as well. The true characters of the pretender hasn't been fully realized. And if they're separated from the church, some of the true and honest in heart might not understand. They might get discouraged and leave as well. So Jesus encourages us in this parable to always exercise great care, great patience, and self-constraint when bearing with others. Isn't that what Jesus did? Yeah. How did Jesus introduce himself in this parable? Do you remember? We're going to put it up on the screen. Do you remember how Jesus introduced himself? The son of man. The son of man. That's how Jesus introduced himself. This is highly significant. Right here in this parable, Jesus introduces himself as the son of man. He could have introduced himself as the son of God. One, equal with the Father, the high and holy one, undefiled and pure. But he didn't. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. A clear reminder that he was not only Emmanuel, God with us, but also Jesus, a son, born of a virgin girl, someone who was touched with the feelings of our infirmities, tempted like in all points as we are, yet without sin. As God, he could have hurled hatred at sin. But instead, he chose not to and instead sought to rescue the sinner from the clutches of sin. That, my friend, is the Son of Man. That, my friend, is Jesus Christ. Consider with me for a moment how Jesus, the Son of Man, dealt with those issues. We can learn something from the way Christ dealt with Satan, Lucifer, in heaven. The angels obviously didn't fully understand and discern the character of the devil, so God let him reveal what was what he was really all about. If he snapped him out of existence right away, doubt about God's character would have surfaced. The angels, of course, then would have served God from fear and not love. God wasn't about to lose the lot in just being hasty with one. And it's true. It's true. I've met those who call those in the church a bunch of hypocrites. They say, I don't want anything to do with it because, you know, in the church, it's just filled with hypocrites. <laughs> Perhaps if we got rid of the people in the church, things would be better. Amen. Oh. There, are many, there are many who, while considering joining the church, are afraid to because of what might be in there. Like the boy who asked while encouraged to go swimming in the local lake by his mum, is there anything in there that's going to kill me? Maybe they've heard horror stories from those who've left or have been informed of tales of intolerance and coldness, but it is not reasonable for them to say these things, nor are these arguments can be used for an excuse for folk not to come to Jesus, you see. According to Jesus, the church will always have to endure pretenders. But from my experience, there are plenty of folk in the church that love Jesus Christ and are seeking to learn to become more like him in their daily lives. No one should become discouraged by people who, 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 who are challenging or by people who are or say challenging things. When we look at the early church, was it any better? 
Ananias and Sapphira, they joined the disciples, but they were struck down for not telling the what? Not telling the truth. Simon Magus was baptized, and yet he tried to secure a miracle by working the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit. He sought to buy it through payment. Demas, he was a trusted friend and disciple, but he forsook Paul. And Judas, Judas, he was numbered with the disciples. We need to remember that Christ doesn't want one person lost. He doesn't. His experience with Judas is on record to get it through to our thick skulls that we need to bear with others as he did. The tears will be in the church till when? Till the end. Till the very end. So what have we learned so far? What have we learned in this story, this parable? First, not all those who profess to accept the principles of the kingdom of heaven are what they appear to be at first. We've also been taught by Christ that we are not to be surprised and therefore disappointed to find in the church those whose lives have not been transformed by His grace. And lastly, we've discovered how Christ would have us treat everybody in the church with forbearance and tender love. That's what we've been, that's what we've learned. Now, before I close, before I close, it must be clearly stated that this parable should not teach anyone to become suspicious of anybody else. You read a parable like this and some folk get it in their minds and get a little confused about some things. They start looking around and wondering, am I wheat? Are they the tares? What? What? No, 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 no. No. Jesus wasn't saying do that. He wasn't saying get suspicious about others in the church or to point out those who you suppose to be tares. That's not the purpose. That's not the reason Jesus gave this parable. It's pretty obvious from Christ's teaching that he would have us all be wheat. Amen? I mean, the fact of the matter is he's saying you don't want to be a tear. You want to be a wheat. That's what you want to be. He he would have all of his sons and daughters be converted and transformed and changed. Have all of his family allowing the transforming power of his grace to make the necessary changes in their lives in preparation for that great day when Jesus Christ comes back again to take them home. Our desire is to be wheat. Amen? Sure. And how? By simply recognizing our need of our Savior each and every day. Trusting our lives into His hands day by day and following His Word even though it may call for some awkward adjustments to be made in the life. We just follow His will because we love Him and His grace is in our hearts. We need to practice humility. We need to practice self-distrust. Look to Jesus learn of his ways, trust in his methods and trust in his grace. And when it's all said and done, Christ will decide who will be considered worthy to dwell with him in the family of heaven. For in him and him alone, who knows, it is him and him alone that knows our thoughts and knows our heart. It is him and him alone that reads our minds. Friend, in the end, there'll be only two groups in the church. There will be the wheat and there will be the tares. And in the end, the truth will finally be revealed, whether you will be faithful or whether you will be declared a pretender. And my prayer is that we will be considered faithful. The choices we make today about Jesus and his, his influence in our lives will determine the destiny that we each will rec- receive. What awaits the tears is clearly frightening. There's no doubt about that. Lake of fire, no eternity, no life, no Jesus. However, however, those who remain faithful, those who keep their hand in the hand of Jesus and look to him to be transformed by his grace, a wonderful promise remains and eternity 
with Jesus Christ. Wonderful promise, wonderful assurance. The choice is evidently clear for each of us, isn't it? Each and every day we have moments to decide. Even at moments we have to decide, am I going to run off to be like the devil or am I going to be like Jesus right now? Am I going to trust his word or am I going to distrust his promises for me? We've all got those decisions we have to make each and every day. The choices we make today are very clear. We want to choose Jesus every day, every moment of every day, amen? This ought to be our decision. This is what the parable encourages us to do, to live for Jesus, to be a wheat and not a tear, and to be ready when he comes again. That's our prayer, amen? We want to be ready when Jesus comes. And we don't want to just, we, we, we don't want to get ready, we want to, Be ready, and we can be ready as we trust in His work in our lives and we cooperate with that grace uh, that's working in our hearts and in our lives. Let's be ready. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing our closing hymn at this time, and um, I'm going to have to whip out the bullets in here to make sure I got it right. It is number 334, and I want you to pay especially close attention to the last verse, uh, the last stanza of this particular song. There is a tendency in our hearts to sometimes, uh, in all of our hearts, to perhaps sometimes drift from the Lord, and we're asking the Lord to not let us drift, but to keep close to Him, to stay by Him. Let's not be pointing fingers at anybody else. Let's be worried about what God is doing in my life, and whether I'm faithful, whether I'm following His Word. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.